0: sori sori mula oh, dak nyawo oh. yakna yeah, sori anna nyu sori ne ti lo sori sori mula oh, dak oh. nyawo oh, lottke oh. em go gebai usang kinna
1: Good afternoon, this is Nina Serrano for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Today we begin our program with a song by the group Quetzal from Los Angeles. A very relevant theme to literature and art that we deal on this program every week. And it's called The Social Relevance of Public Art by Quetzal. That was Quetzal singing the real, which they call the social relevance of public art. This afternoon, I'm going to be reading you excerpts from a recent book called Voices of Protest, Documents of Courage and Dissent, edited by Frank Lowenstein, Cheryl Lechner, and Eric Bruin with a foreword by Bill McKibben. And as I go through this book, I find so many exciting, uh, parts to the literature of protest that they, this is such a fascinating concept, uh, that they have put together. It's the, uh, roots and roles of poetry, of protest rather, dissent and liberty, modes of protest, and roots of dissent. So, uh, let us start with the first document, uh, at least one of the first English-language documents that chronicle the literature of dissent, and it's the Magna Carta. In June of 1215, in a meadow known as Runnymede, on the banks of the River Thames, King John of England sang, signed the Magna Carta, or the Great Charter, Written in Latin with minor variations in text on each individual hand printed copy. The Magna Carta represented the first time that the power of the sovereign was limited by a written document. It set the precedent for all future constitutions and thus for all constitutional protections of civil liberties. The concession King John made in the Magna Carta were forced by the armed revolt of his own barons. The barons had been driven to this cause by John's rapacious administration of the country. Taxes were high, corruption rampant, justice capricious, and widows and underage heirs of nobles subject to vicious exploitation. In May, the barons captured London, and John sued for peace. The Magna Carta aimed to limit corruption and exploitation by John and his agents by specifying the rights of all men, a term that encompassed only male nobles. It establishes procedures for the resolution of future conflicts, including the right of any man to protest mistreatment to a group of barons, and established procedures by which those barons could, by majority rule, decide the justice of such protests and it is this document that has been our uh the basis for our own legal system and whatever rights that we so enjoy uh, to continue with quetzal their next song is called 20 pesos and then we'll be back to the voices of protest
0: ¿Cuál es tu canción? ¿Cuál es tu canción? Pajarita, pajarita. levantan son mensajes O sonho Pacarita, pacarita.
1: And to continue our readings from the book Voices of Protest by Lowenstein, Lechner, and Brown, there's a selection here by someone named Eric Larson, not a famous writer, but what an important contribution he makes. In the summer of 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, President George H.W. Bush led a coalition of countries around the world in an effort to force Iraq out of the oil-producing nation. The debate about whether to launch a military attack against Iraq was extremely contentious and continued right up to the invasion which took place in early 1991. Three California cities... San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland declared themselves sanctuaries for Gulf War objectors, as did many churches across the country. During the build-up and subsequent Persian Gulf War, about 2,000 men and women in the U.S. military applied for a conscientious objector status. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Eric Larson made this statement at a press conference announcing the intention to file on August 28th, 1990. The war proved to be very brief, ending after a few weeks, and there were far fewer casualties than feared on the part of the United States, making Bush extremely popular. For a brief time after the war, he had a high favorability rating. And this was the argument when he was leaving the Marine Corps by Eric Larson. Hello and good morning, my name is Eric Larson. I am a Lance Corporal in the United States Marine Corps Reserve and a radar mechanic for the Hawk Missile System. I'm stationed in Hayward, California, with a 4th Light Anti-Aircraft Missile Battalion, 4th Marine Aircraft Wing. On April 21st, 1986, I joined the Marine Corps to defend the American Dream, which first attracted my parents to this country in 1958. I emerged from boot camp three months later, a fully indoctrinated fighting machine willing to go anywhere in the world to defend the ideals and freedoms stated in the Constitution of America. I first became aware of the realities of U.S. policies through through student activists at Chabot Community College. They introduced me to alternative newspapers, books, and exposed me to the readings and speeches of Archbishop Oscar Romero. Of El Salvador. I learned about a Central American history of U.S. sponsored exploitive policies motivated by corporate and personal greed. Seventy thousand Salvadorans had been killed over the past ten years as a result of U.S. policies. I realized that I could no longer blindly follow my commander in chief, but that my actions were ultimately accountable to a higher authority, namely. God. My deeply rooted moral convictions have led me to declare my objections to the escalation of tensions and seemingly inevitable war in the Middle East. It sickens me to hear Mr. Bush announce that 40,000 more of my fellow reservists and 80,000 of my fellow active duty brothers and sisters are going to wage war in the Middle East to protect our American lifestyle. Oil imports could be cut in half if a sound energy policy focusing on renewable resources and conservation were in effect. Our oil-consuming Western lifestyle is destroying the earth, and it is our wasteful society that has brought the world to the brink of inevitable war. Our presence in the Middle East has destroyed any hope of any of us ever of receiving a peace dividend. We are wasting more than $24 million a day in Saudi Arabia while Oakland's school system is still in shambles with homeless people still walking down the street and while the savings and loans criminals are still on the loose. I've been listening to a lot of experts on public radio and they share my concern about the use of chemicals and nuclear weapons as a possible event if the war does occur. And by the way, of course, this is written in 1990. It did occur. I have experienced firsthand the frightening power of chemical weapons, and I never want to go through that again. I had two buddies who were involved in a chemical incident when I was on an exercise this summer in Dugway Paving Grounds in Utah. They were rushed to an aid station while decontamination teams swept through the area. While standing up wind from the contamination area, which had been the site of chemical testing for the last 50 years, I made a vow to my buddies. Never again will I allow myself or others to be put in a chemical environment. The suggestion that nuclear weapons could be used in addition to chemical weapons scares the hell out of me. The use of chemical biological agents in nuclear arms is completely unjustified. The Bush-Reagan administration encouraged the sale of chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein. Bush said nothing at the time about human rights when Hussein used the weapons on his own people. Bush wants us to forget that he turned his eyes when innocent men, women, and children were being gassed. Now he wants the American public to turn our eyes and forget about humanity as he prepares to use me and others in service as fodder for his cannon. I spent three long months in boot camp to learn to view human beings as targets. It has taken me almost three years to begin to see people as individuals once again. And I'll be damned if I'm going to be part of this militaristic feeding frenzy. I will refuse orders to activate me into the regular Marines... I will refuse orders to ship me to Saudi Arabia to defend our polluting, exploitive lifestyle. I will refuse to face another human being with a gas mask covering my face and my N-16 drawn. I declare myself to be a conscientious objector. Here is my sea bag full of personal gear... Here is my gas mask. I will return them to the government. I no longer need them. I am no longer a Marine. That was the statement of refusal to participate in interventionist wars by Eric Larson from the book Voices of Protest, Lowenstein, Lechner, and Braun. And now for another song by Quetzal.
0: It, they it it's a behind the glass I pass it fast Knowing that I'm on But will it last Oh yeah, it's a Beautifully displayed I couldn't help it Covering our face
1: This is Nina Serrano on Open Book, and I'm continuing my readings from the new publication Voices of Protest. And this selection is by Pablo Neruda, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1971. The poet Pablo Neruda of Chile was a fierce radical. In the oligarchy part of his famous epic poem, Canto General, he dealt with the history of Latin America and the suppression of the poor, first by the Spanish and later by the wealthy class that maintained control following the independence across the region. Neruda was considered as an alternative to Salvador Allende as the communist candidate for Chile's presidency in 1973, and this translation is by Jack Schmidt, and it's from the poetry of Pablo Neruda. No, the flag has not yet dried, the soldiers have not yet slept when freedom changed clothes and was turned into a hacienda, a caste emerged from the newly sown lands, a quadrille of nouveau riches with coats of arms, with police and prison. They drew a black line. Here on our side, Mexico's porfieristas, Chile's gentlemen gentry from the jockey club of Buenos Aires, Uruguay's slacked freebooters, the Ecuadorian upper crust, clerical dandies everywhere. The poor? to the mines, the desert. Mr. Rodríguez de la Crota spoke in the Senate with a mellifluous, elegant voice. This law at long last establishes the obligatory hierarchy and above all the principles of Christianity. It was as necessary as water." Only the communists, conceived in hell, as you are well aware, could object to the funnel code, sagacious and severe. But this Asiatic opposition, proceeding from sub-man, is easy to suppress, to jail with them all, to concentration camp, and that the way the distinguished gentlemen and obliging radical party lackeys will stand alone. There was a round of applause from the aristocratic benches, What elegance, how spiritual, what a philosopher, what a luminary. And everyone ran off to fill his pockets in his business, one monopolizing milk, another racketeering in wire, another stealing in sugar, and all boisterously proclaiming themselves patriots, with a monopoly for patriotism also accounted for in the funnel law. And that was Pablo Neruda from Voices of Protest. And now, Quetzal. Serrano with technical assistance by Erica Bridgman, and we've been hearing readings from Voices of Protest on Cover to Cover on KPFA. Thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.
0: 1920s, RCA monopolized radio for more than a decade, thanks to U.S. patent law.
1: In the 1980s, the Reagan-era FCC demolished media ownership restrictions. The
0: 1996 Telecommunications Act relaxed media ownership rules even more, resulting in six companies controlling most U.S. broadcast media. Now, in 2007, a copyright ruling threatens online media diversity.
1: Royalties on webcast music will skyrocket on July 15th, putting many online webcasters out of business.
0: KPFA will face increased costs and may have to limit its online streaming. Visit kpfa.org slash savewebradio for more information.